Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Please hear with me then the reading of God's Inspired and inerrant word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, today we we begin the seventh and the final series of visions in the book of Revelation, which cover chapters 20, 21, and 22. And each series of these seven visions that we've looked at thus far depict the events that transpire between the the first coming and the second coming of Christ. But as we've seen, as we have gotten closer to the end of the book of Revelation, as we've gotten further along in the visions, one thing that we've seen is true is that they begin to intensify more. And they begin to focus more of their attention upon the end and upon when Christ returns. And we'll see over the next several weeks that this likewise is the case with this seventh series of visions. Now, throughout our study in the book of Revelation, one thing I've attempted to do, it's the key word, attempted, I've, I've attempted to simply articulate a, a positive interpretation of the book of Revelation from the amillennial perspective. That's kind of been what I've been attempting to do not wanting to every week bring up all of the differences that, that lie with, with the other interpretations because I don't want to make it about anything else than the exegesis of the text so that we might see it holds true to, to what it is that we say that we believe, that the, the view we're holding is the correct one. Right? But today, with, with Revelation 20 being such a hotly debated text, it's difficult to handle Revelation 20 without addressing the debate that's taking place, right? without addressing what all the, the issues are about. Now, for some of you, what I'm going to say then in the, our introduction is going to be kind of a refresher for you. Uh, for others of you, though, you may not be familiar with the debate, and so I hope this helps you right, to understand as we move further along in, in chapter 20 why it is we take the position that we take, and why that's the position that most of the Reformed faith takes today. Now, the debate centers really around the, the millennium, or that thousand years that we read about in verses uh, 2 and 3, and what that means about the return of Christ. Or what that thousand years has to do with the, with the bodily and final return of our Lord and Savior. And so, this is going to be something helpful for us to grasp now, this thousand years and what it means about Christ's return. Because not only do we read about it today in verses 2 and 3, but we will read about it in verses 4 and verses 5 and verses 6 and verses 7. 
And so we're going to address this again. So we're going to address part of the debate today. And then next week we'll look at the other aspects of the debate as well. Now, generally speaking then, as we think about this, there are really kind of three views. Right? There are three views in mind. You have the, the pre-millennial view. You have the post-millennial view. And you have the amillennial view. Now, at the very foundation of the argument, it is this. That the premillennialist says that Christ bodily returns before the millennium. So, pre-millennial. He comes before the thousand years. Okay? Now, the post-millennialist and the amillennialist agree that Christ comes after the thousand years. And so, in that sense, the amillennialist is post-millennialist. We believe that, that Christ will bodily return after the millennium. After this thousand years, whatever that is. Now, for each of those other two views, though, the, the premillennial view and the postmillennial view, we, we want to let the authors do some, some speaking for themselves as well. And so, in preparation for today, I was you know, looking through this book called The Meaning of the Millennium. It's a, it's a four views book. And so, I just drew out kind of some statements from the proponents of these two other views to allow them to articulate for themselves uh, what uh, their position is. Now, again, this is generally speaking, not everyone holds to these exact details, but, but in defense of premillennialism, John Wolverd says this, that premillennialism is founded principally on the interpretation of the Old Testament. That if the Old Testament is interpreted literally, then the Old Testament gives a clear picture of the prophetic expectation of Israel. They expected that God would deliver them from their enemies and that He would usher in a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and prosperity upon a redeemed earth. Okay, So what they are saying is that after we just read Revelation 19 and and all the armies of the world are destroyed, that they see now Christ bodily returns And now he sets up this thousand year kingdom. Right? When he returns, he, he doesn't return, they say, to set up his, the eternal state. He doesn't come bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. He, he comes and he sets up a literal earthly kingdom with a literal earthly throne by which he rules for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And during this time, it's going to be a time of, of peace and prosperity and righteousness upon a, a redeemed earth. Okay, so that's premillennialism. Now, Lorraine Botner defends the, the postmillennial view. And he says this, Postmillennialism is that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and that, the saving of the, and, and that saving of the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. So the kingdom of God is extended through the preaching of the Word and the saving work of the Spirit in the hearts of individuals. But that the world would eventually be Christianized. And that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. The second coming of Christ then will be immediately followed by the general resurrection, the general judgment, an introduction of the 
heaven and earth, excuse me, heaven and hell in all their fullness. And so we see there's a difference there between the premillennialist and the postmillennialist, but also as we as we look at both of those, there's also a, a great similarity between the two as well, isn't there? Right? There's a great similarity between the two as well. Right? They both believe that there's going to be a period of time on earth before the new heavens and the new earth when righteousness and, and peaceful tranquility will rule the world. Right? The dispensationalist believes that it's going to happen. Right? Christ is going to return, establish a, a peaceful kingdom on earth for a thousand years before the, the, the devil builds an army and he defeats them once and for all before then the new heavens and the earth arrives. For the post-millennialists, they believe that, that the, the, the golden age of Christianity will come and, and after that, Christ will, will come to, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but they both agree that prior to the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be some peaceful, righteous tranquility upon the earth. Next, then we turn to the all-millennial view. Right? The all-millennial view. And before we, we begin to address the all-millennial view, we have to address the name itself. Right? The name itself. Because that word even, all-millennialism, what does that mean? No millennium. Right? It literally means no millennium. And so you can see why some people are confused as to, as to what all-millennialists actually believe. Right? Do, they, do they actually believe there's no millennium? And the answer is no. We agree with the, with the post-millennialist. We agree that, that Christ is returning after the thousand years. That Christ is returning after that millennium period. But here is the reason though why it's called amillennialism. Because it does not agree with the post-millennialist or the premillennialist shared belief that Christians can expect a semi-curse-free or a semi-suffering-free Christian world under the first heavens and the first earth prior to the return of Christ. Right? Like the post-millennialists, we do believe that the thousand years speaks of a time of the exaltation of the name of Christ. Right? We believe that the thousand years does speak about the spiritual reign of Christ as the gospel is proclaimed around the world and to the ends of the earth. But, but we drastically differ on what that actually looks like, though, and what that means. And we'll, we'll address that later as we, as we get to that in the text. Now, with that as the background, right, let us turn our attention to the text. And as we read our text, we can see, well, what, what viewpoint does the text line up with? And so our first point this morning, then, we'll call this. When does the binding of Satan occur? Right, point number one. When does the binding of Satan occur? When does the binding of Satan occur? Our second point will be this. What does the binding of Satan accomplish? What does the binding of Satan accomplish? So when does the binding occur? What does the binding accomplish? Now let's all look together at how first the binding is, is described for us. Right? John, we're told, sees an angel coming down from heaven. Right, holding a key to a bottomless pit. Also in his hand, we're told, is a great chain. The angel seizes the dragon. He binds the, the dragon with the chain. He throws the dragon into a pit and he, shut, he shuts 
and he seals it over him for a thousand years. Now, two questions really need to be addressed in at the outset. The first one is this. Do angels have bodies? Do angels have bodies? The answer is no. Right? Angels are incorporeal beings. Right? They are spirits. They do not have bodies. Remember in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus shows Himself to the apostles. What does He say to them? He says, touch. Right? Feel. I have flesh and bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Right? See that I have them. Right? Jesus says Himself, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. In a, in a, in a, a test to demonstrate that He wasn't a spirit, He said, he said touch. Right? Feel. I have a body. So that means then that neither the good angel who comes down from heaven in our text, neither the evil angel who is the dragon in our text have bodies. Right? That's what it means. Which answers then the, the second question for us really. Which is, is the text to be understood literally or figuratively and symbolically? And I think that we, we see that it is not to be understood literally, but rather figuratively and, and symbolically. That's what the text indicates for us. As the key, the chain, the, the physical binding of somebody, the throwing, the shutting, the sealing, the pit, none of it's literal. Right? None of it's literal. It's all figurative language. Look down at verse 3 real quick with me. And he threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, if we're to be consistent then in our understanding and in our interpretation, in a book full of symbols, in a book full of numbers that are symbolic, in a text right now that we understand is a symbolic text, how are we to understand the thousand years? Likewise, as symbolic, as, as non-literal. Now, not all do this, but you do have those in the premillennial camp and the postmillennial camp who believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. Right? You have some premillennialists who believe that when Christ returns, He's going to set up a literal thousand year kingdom. You have some postmillennialists, not all, who, who believe that Christ is going to uh, set up a, a thousand year golden age of Christianity prior to His return. But those aren't necessary for the position, but, but there are some that hold that. But, but what we see from the text today is those positions aren't warranted, are they? It's not warranted from the text. And instead, what, what we ought to see is that the, the thousand years is describing for us a real period of time figuratively. Right? The thousand years is describing for us a very real period of time, but figuratively. And so the question then for us today is this, well, what does that thousand years then represent? Right, what does the thousand years represent? And so for that, we can start to consider when does the binding of Satan occur? Because if we can understand when Satan is bound, we'll understand when the thousand years is. Because he's bound during the thousand years. So now we're going to look at just a, a handful of texts together that indicate for us when Satan's binding occurs. So listen closely with me to these few texts. First in John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says, leading up to His death on the cross, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world, who is Satan, 
will be cast out. Right? With the coming of Christ, Satan is now cast out. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, God, right, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. Right? So with Christ coming, what did He do? He cast out Satan. He disarmed Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, if you remember that text, what happens to Jesus there as He's, as he's casting out demons? He's being accused of casting demons out by the power of the devil. Now what's interesting though is Jesus' response. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, this is what He says. How can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. You see what he's saying is, Satan's a strong man in that, in that example. He's saying, how can I be freeing these people from the power of the devil, from these demonic hosts that are inside of them, unless Satan is first bound? Think about Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. When the 72 return after going forth and preaching the Gospel, we're told that they rejoice. And they rejoice likewise because they have authority and power over the demons. They said, even the demons listen to us. And what does Jesus say immediately after that? He says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Right. So this is why the, the, the apostles and the disciples had power and authority over the demons, right? Because with the first coming of Christ, He diminished the power and He diminished the authority of the devil. Right? That is what happened with the first coming of Christ. Remember likewise in Revelation chapter 12, in verses 1-6, to it described for us how the ancient serpent, how the devil tried to devour the man-child. Right? But he failed and Christ accomplished His work. And in verse 8 of chapter 12, what are we told? That Satan was thrown out of heaven. He was thrown out of heaven. See what these words are then that these texts use of, of to speak of Satan. That he's thrown down. He is bound. He is cast out. He, he falls. That very word bind in Matthew 12.29 that I brought up, that the, the strong man had to be binded or bound first, that's the same word used in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Right? Same word. And what period of time then is Satan being cast out? Right? What period of time has Satan fallen like lightning? Right? What period of time was the strong man bound in? Is the time starting with the arrival of Christ in His earthly ministry? He will be bound until the end, right? Prior to the return of Christ. And so, He is bound during when? Right? He is bound during the church age. He is bound during the gospel age. That is what our text is telling us. Now, one reason why the premillennialist has a problem with this and why they don't see that in this text is because they read the book of Revelation chronologically. And we've demonstrated on multiple occasions why you are not to read the book chronologically. It makes no sense if you read it chronologically. This is what I mean. Look at uh, chapter 19 with me, please. And let's look at verse 17 together of chapter 19. This is what we read. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, 
gather for the great supper of the Lord. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I want you to see something, brothers and sisters. We might call this an Achilles heel for the premillennial position, for a chronological reading. There is no reason to bind Satan anymore after chapter 19 if you're reading this chronologically. Nobody else exists. Right? All of the unbelievers have been killed. Right? Both small and great. Every kind of person. The whole army. Everyone who received the mark of the beast. All were slain. There are no more unbelievers on the earth. It's an earth of redeemed. So I ask the question then, who is it that Satan's going to gather then in verse 7 for an army? Look at down at chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and he will come out and deceive the nations there at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their numbers are going to be like the sand of the sea. Who is he going to gather? No unbelievers exist at the time. They've all been wiped away. They've all been destroyed by God. But I want us to see this. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense if chapter 20 begins a new series of visions. Right, which describes what? Right, the, the first coming of Christ. Right, we said these, these visions depict the coming of Christ to the return of Christ. Chapter 20 begins a new set of visions where Christ returns and He binds Satan and He is bound until close to the end. When verse 7 comes into play, at the, at the end of the Gospel age, after all of the redeemed are saved, in verse 7 then, it makes sense that He now allows Satan to go forth and to gather His army and to make war where He defeats them and casts them into the eternal flames of fire. You see, the only difference between what was depicted for us in, verse, in chapter 19 and in chapter 20 is this. That in chapter 19, it depicted the events as they occurred to the beast and the false prophet. In chapter 20, all it does is depict the exact same events, but it focuses the attention not on the beast and false prophet, but on Satan. That's what we see here in chapter 20. And so then what we see is this thousand years or this millennium is a figurative number that symbolizes the fullness of time, or the, the total or the complete time for which Satan is bound, which is the church age or the gospel age. Now right away we can anticipate an objection, can't we? How can Satan be bound when Scripture says so many things about Satan's activity? Right, what does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8? That the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, we'll answer that in our second point this morning, which is what does the binding of Satan accomplish? Right, what does the binding of Satan accomplish? 
You see, one of the problems with that objection that Satan right now does not appear to be bound is this, is that they don't understand what the binding, what the binding consists of. You don't understand what the binding consists of. They think that if, if Scripture says that Satan is bound, then it must mean that Satan cannot be active in any way. Right? That if Satan is bound, he cannot have any influence over anybody, but that is reading into the text more than what the text says. Right? See, it's reading into the text more than the text says. Why? Because the text qualifies for us what the binding is. Right? The binding is limited to one thing, and what is that? Look back with me at verse 3 once more. And he threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Right? He is bound for this reason and this reason alone so that he might not deceive the nations any more. That is what the binding is. That's what the binding includes. Now, I want us to kind of visualize this binding by using a human example. Think of a ferocious dog. right? A very vicious dog. One that, if you opened your front door, would run straight out the door and would attack the first person or animal that it's seen. What does the owner of that dog, if he wants to keep that dog, what does he do? He makes sure that when his dog goes outside, he is leashed. But is the dog, now he's not dangerous anymore? He's not vicious anymore? No, that's not the case at all. If, If a bull were to roll into that yard and a young boy were to run and grab the ball, he would be mauled by the dog still. Right? Even though the dog is on the leash, as people walk by, he barks and he growls and he scares and he intimidates. Right? His ability to harm through the use of that leash has been curtailed, but it has not been completely stopped. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we are to think of the binding of Satan. His power to act has been curtailed. It has been curtailed by God in the sending of Christ. But God hasn't stopped Satan's movement completely. Right? He has them leashed for a time in order that he might not do one thing and that is deceive the nations any longer. Now you might say to yourselves, well, the nations seem pretty deceived to me now, don't they? Right? There are a lot of unbelievers all around the world that make up a lot of these nations. Well, is not Satan then deceiving the nations? Is this text then not wrong? Is your interpretation then not wrong? I think the answer takes a little thought. It takes a little thought. I want us to think all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Think all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When our first parents fall, what does God say to the serpent? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What does God do here? He unfolds His plan for human history, doesn't He? He unfolds His plan that a coming Messiah will come to crush the head of the serpent. He tells them that from the beginning. But then we have to ask ourselves, how does God go about accomplishing that in the world? Well, in Genesis 12, He calls Abram out of the world, doesn't He? And he establishes the Israelites as his people. 
Does He do that with any other nation in the world? It is only with Israel that He sets up His tabernacle. It is only with Israel that He sets up His temple. It is only with Israel that He establishes the ceremonial law by which they could worship God aright. It is only with Israel He sets up the judicial law by which they are to live in peace with one another as a, as a church state. All the other peoples, all the other nations were separated from God, separated from the covenants, and aliens and strangers to Him. While God allowed light to shine within the Israelite camp, do you know where it was not shining during that time? Right? The other nations of the world. Right? And without it, they were trapped in their own sin and in their own misery and in darkness with no hope, with no escape. Eternal destruction. Right? Prior to Christ, that was the state of all nations. Darkness. Paul says this himself if you don't believe me. In Acts chapter 14, verse 16, this is what Paul says as he's preaching at Lystra. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Right? See this then, brothers and sisters. Prior to the coming of Christ, right, Satan was empowered over the nations. Right? God permitted him to, to, to cover them in darkness and to keep them in darkness. But with the coming of Christ, all of that has changed. Right? All of it has changed. And in that, then we can rejoice, can't we? Right? We can rejoice that the spiritual darkness that the devil had kept all the nations is, is no more. Right? We can rejoice that God's prophetic word spoken to Abram in Genesis 12.3 that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed has come to fruition. Right? We can rejoice that Jesus is that fulfillment. Right? That in His first coming, He brought the truth of the Gospel to the nations. That in His first coming, He brought light to the world. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 14? I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Then He says this, And I have other sheep that are not of the fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so see what, what the coming of Christ did. Christ came in order to redeem His chosen people from all the nations. That's what His first coming enacted. And then He gives the apostles, right, His emissary, emissaries, His ambassadors that charge, doesn't He, in Matthew 28. Now go, make disciples of the nations. And so see, brothers and sisters, and that the binding of Satan for a thousand years so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer, describes for us Satan's inability during the church age to stop the gospel from having its intended effect. That's what it's talking about here. That's what it's talking about. That God is going to save everyone from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that he has predestined unto salvation. That no one is going to stop the gospel from going forth to the ends of the earth and keeping the nations in darkness anymore. Right? The gospel will not return void. This is why Jesus, though, can say that, that I am building my church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. He can say that. Why? Because now Satan is bound. Right? Satan is on a leash, so to speak. And so he, he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. He cannot uh, stop the advancement of the light of Christ going forth to the nations. 
He cannot stop one of God's elect from from being saved if Christ died and, and purchased him by his blood. He cannot stop the plan of God. Which also means what? That, that God, likewise, is keeping his people safe. He's keeping his people safe during his church age as well. Right? He protects us. Right? God is his people's shield. He will not allow Satan to have your soul ever again. For he is sovereign over your soul. He rules over your soul. And he will protect you and I and all believers alike, spiritually and salvifically. That's how He will protect you. God is saying to His people this day, do not fear, I have Satan on a leash. Go do your task as a church. Go accomplish the goal I have set you out to do. Satan is leashed. Go pursue those missionary endeavors to the ends of the earth. Because I will bless those. That's my plan for the church. And Satan will do nothing We'll do nothing to stop it. And so let us thank God, brothers and sisters. Let us thank God. For we are one of those nations that needed the light of the Gospel. And apart from the Gospel coming to us, we would still be in our trespasses and sin. Let us thank God for the unfathomable riches of His kindness in appointing men like Paul to go to Gentiles like us to preach the light of Christ to the world. But let us also understand that this was God's plan hidden from all ages that was veiled in the Old Testament beginning in Genesis 3.15 but revealed now to us in the coming of Christ. And let us thank God that we have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let us thank God that Christ is now our peace and He has made everyone everywhere who believes in His name one people. Let us thank God for breaking down that dividing wall that once stood between Jew and Gentile. Let us thank God for reconciling us through His Son. By putting away that hostility that once stood between the Jew and the nations. So let us see, this is what the binding of Satan has accomplished. That is what our text describes this morning. That in the first coming of Christ, He, by His life, death, and resurrection, bound Satan and disarmed him from keeping the nations in darkness anymore, thus securing the success of the Gospel. That is what our text is describing for us today. As we say that though, let us not be naive, brothers and sisters. Let us not be deceived. Because Satan is still devouring unbelievers. Satan is still gathering an army. Satan is still making war against Christ and His people. Right? He still wants to harm you. Right? Who is Satan but the one who is masquerading as an angel of light? But we need to remember who Satan is. He's our enemy. Satan is a slanderer. He is a tempter. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Which is why James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's interesting though, isn't it? Oftentimes, as we preach, we say, Resist the devil, believer. Resist sin. Resist temptation. Or, excuse me, flee the devil. Right? Flee sin. Flee temptation. In that context, in James' context, what does he say? He says, actually, the, the devil's going to flee you. The devil's going to run from you who are living in the grace of God. The devil will flee you because he doesn't know what to do with the praying Christian. He doesn't know what to do with the Christian who lives with the two-edged sword of the Word in his hand. 
So let us see, brothers and sisters, that Satan will never take your soul. He will never steal your salvation. He will continue to try to attack you and harm you, but he shall never win. He will ultimately fail. But this, brothers and sisters, is where I said earlier, the difference lies, though, uh, between postmillennialists and amillennialists, though. And what, and what this means, though, during this thousand years that Satan's bound. Right? What it means for the, for the earth. What it means for, the, for, for, for people everywhere. Right? The postmillennialist says this, that, that during this time that Satan is bound, that the gospel is going to go forth. And that as it does, the world is going to be Christianized. It's going to be heavily Christian, dominated by Christianity. Right? But this is not what the amillennialist believes. With that idea, we depart because we see this is not at all what the book of Revelation teaches. Right? This is not at all what we see that we see Satan is very active, isn't he? Right? During the gospel age, during the church age, he is very active. He is attacking believers. Right? He is trying to raise up armies to persecute God's people, to cause them to suffer. This is why Jesus tells His churches in the book of Revelation, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's because they're a persecuted people. They're not a prosperous people. They're not the predominant people. They are the, the persecuted. They are the suffering. Likewise, brothers and sisters, does Jesus not give us His own example? And are we greater than our Master? What was Jesus' example? It was suffering to glory. That's the example He gave to us. Suffering to glory. Let us not seek to try to escape that. But this is what we can expect. This is what Scripture tells us we can expect as we bear witness to the name of Christ and as we keep the commandments of God. But this is why, though, we rejoice when Christ returns. This is why we want Him to return. Not because He's going to pluck us from a Christianized world, but when He comes, He's going to pluck us from a world of suffering. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That's why in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, we are told by Paul that God is going to grant the church relief when? When Christ returns with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Right? Jesus says in Matthew twenty four twenty two, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, today that Scripture knows of no such thing as a semi-curse-free, a semi-suffering-free, Christianized world. It only knows of the present evil age and it knows of the glorious age to come. But don't fear. Don't fear. For we read in our text that Satan is bound. He will use his minions to try to stir up people to persecute the church and to cause us to suffer harm. But know this, no matter what he does, he cannot steal your salvation. He cannot have your soul that all belongs to the Lord. So let us May this cause us then to look forward to that day when Christ appears in the clouds to, to bring that ancient foe his, his final defeat. That day when He will then gather His peoples and bring us to the new heavens and the new earth. A place of true, everlasting peace and joy and happiness and security and safety and prosperity. And let us all here today who believe look forward then 
to hearing the voice from the throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. How it is so consistent with itself. That's a reflection upon the the perfect nature of our God and the consistency that, that You are, that Your being is. You cannot lie. You are pure truth and nothing but truth and light. We thank You for the truth and the light of the Word today. We ask, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before Your Word, that we would receive Your Word as You have given it to us, that we would think about these things, that we would dwell upon these things, that we would pray about these things, we would ask that You would you would help us then in light of what we have learned to, to live our lives and the expectation of the coming of Christ and to live our lives every day Right, willing to bear witness to Christ and to obey His commandments, right, knowing that one day the suffering shall cease and, and glory will be our destiny. And so, Father, we, we pray. We pray that You would bless us by Your Word, that You would sanctify us with Your truth, that You would grow us in our Christian maturity, that You would uh, help us uh, to see the, the glories and the excellencies of Your Almighty Word. And so we come before you this day praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.